representative of all of us lamenting, wondering how in the world can our broken lives join in God's song? This was our purpose from the beginning, friends. That our lives would fit together and make harmonious sounds singing with all creation the glory of our wonderful God. And we're going to find out that the only way we can become the singers we were meant to be is by looking to Christ. So let's dive into this spectacular poem. Starting in verses 1-6, through we're going to read them again as they are the hope of our restoration. Listen to creation's chorus in verses 1-6. through The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the ends of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Right away, the psalmist wants us to know Everything around you, everything you see, every breath you take, every smell you experience, it is all to point you to our glorious God. It screams something at you about how great God is. The first thing we should hear it saying is that God exists. He's there. Creation's telling you this didn't happen by accident. It just doesn't come out of nothing. How absurd is such a thought, a ridiculous notion that the Bible doesn't even bother engaging with, that something can come from nothing as scientific materialism tells us, or that creation is just eternally self-existent as Eastern religions would teach. Both of these philosophies actually have the same idolatrous root. Both scientific materialism and Eastern pantheism see creation, elevate creation to the highest level of the Creator. They both see creation as God, the biggest, most powerful, self-sustaining thing. But David is telling us in this song that creation shouts a chorus, this repeated refrain, there is a God, there is a God. He made it all. He stands apart from it. It's His handiwork. He he made it with His hands and He stands back and adores it while it turns back its gaze towards Him and praises Him for His glory. It proclaims His might and the immense beauty of distant galaxies. The untamable vastness of the ocean seas. The impossible stability of massive mountain ranges. God is bigger than all these things. Think of our own sun that provides for us heat and life and light. It just looks like a little ball in the sky, but our earth could fit into that sun 1.3 million times. And our sun 
is rather small compared to many of the billions and billions of stars in the universe. And God holds them all in His hand. That's our God. And His beauty and creative detail is revealed in in the ordinary things that we take for granted all around us. In the, the song of the birds in the trees. The vibrant colors in the forests all around us. Even the tiniest microscopic complexity of a bacterial flagellum. Or the howling winter wind whistling across the barren Midwestern landscape. Everything speaks to God's majesty. All of creation sings of God's glory. When we begin to pity ourselves, we get lost in our own circumstances of suffering and and sadness. It's because we've begun to think too much of ourselves, turn the attention in on ourselves. We forget to look out and see that God is holding it all together. Listen to creation's chorus telling us that He's working. He's alive. I think of the story of Job. What a sad story. The man lost his livelihood. Lost most of his family. He lost his health. He was sick for years. And when he brought his complaint to God, what did God say to him? God paraded before Job for many chapters, all of creation, asking him, did you make one of these? Are you able to make one of these? Were you there when I made this? No. So keep your mouth shut. (laughs) Seems a rather insensitive thing to say to someone suffering, but Job needed to be humbled. He needed to realize how small he is and how incredible God is. How powerful God is before he could ever understand God's comfort. He needed to take his eyes off of himself and look out to see that everything is made for God's joyful glory. And even in Job's circumstances, God is going to bring joyful glory. My own testimony Starts in this same way. As I said, I love to look out at the skies, but I never took it far enough. I always thought that God was rather impressed with me. He was my buddy. He was glad to have me on his team. Things between us were good, you know? Me and God, we got an understanding. But as I sat longer under the stars and I asked more questions about what they were saying to me, I realized... He's big. He's much bigger than I ever understood, and I am much smaller. He's not impressed with me. He doesn't, he's not my buddy. In fact, I realized I was in a lot of trouble because I had begun to make creation song all about myself, putting myself forward as the lead singer, trying to make myself the main character in the story. But all of creation is God's theater for His drama. It's the concert hall for His symphony. Everything is for Him. It's about Him. And everything we see in creation is to give us tangible realities to grab onto to begin to understand who He is and how we relate to Him. So the Psalms are filled with this type of imagery. God is like a flowing river as we saw in Psalm 1, that provides joyful nourishment. 
We are deer panting for refreshing, life-giving water. But that can only be satisfied in God Himself. God is older, stronger, more stable, more majestic than the biggest, most beautiful mountain ranges. He's more sol- a more solid refuge than the biggest immovable rock. His voice booms louder than the thunder of a summer storm. He's a shepherd who cares for us tenderly as fragile sheep. He's a warrior, stronger than an army of a thousand war horses in their chariots. Creation gives us these images to understand God, and this song never stops covering the entire planet. Verse 2 says, day and night, the song continues. Verse 3 says, there's no corner of the entire planet that cannot hear its song. Nobody can claim, I had no idea. I didn't know there was a God. Why didn't He reveal Himself to me? This is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1, right? Everyone is without excuse. The song is everywhere. It's obvious, but we suppress it. We plug our ears. La la la, I can't hear it. Or we're so vain that we probably think the song is about us. All of creation is working to reveal who God is. It's designed as a place for Him to make Himself known. This is what the psalm says in verses 4 to 6. Creation is like a tent. The word tent here is tabernacle. It's the word that's often used for tabernacle in the Old Testament. It's that tent that Israel made so God could come and dwell with His people. But that tabernacle was supposed to just be a little miniature model of what all the earth was to be. An entire tent for God to come and live with His people, filling the whole earth with His glory. Which is what Isaiah loves to speak about. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah 40, verse 22 says that God stretched out the skies like a tent so He could dwell there with His people. Not because He needs a shelter, but because He wants to live with us and make Himself known among us. The imagery of the sun here in a tent is deliberately personified in order to help us see that creation is simply a picture frame. So he can step into it and say, look at me, guys. I'm the most beautiful thing, the most powerful thing you can know. Creation is a chorus to sing the song of his glory. Like the sun, he comes out of his place to show off, to make himself known. With joy, he goes throughout the world so everyone can see him and participate in his joy. Nothing is hidden from his life-giving heat. He can be seen by everyone. David knows as he writes this that God is not so transcendent, so high above creation that He doesn't care about what's going on in His own life. The suffering that He's experiencing. Even though God is above creation, from creation, He's separate from creation, that's part of His essential nature. God has nevertheless chosen to come into creation to make Himself known as a friend. And so verses 7-11 through move to sing our Maker's melody. God's own words reveal His identity. 
God sings His own solo to tell us who He is that we might know Him as more than just a Creator. So let's hear about these words that He uses to make known, make Himself known. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Even though God makes Himself known in many ways through creation, the trouble is that we're unable to clearly understand the words of the song. Everyone knows that there's a God. That's why there's thousands of religious perspectives, even more than that, around the world. People see creation and say, obviously there's a God. And then we start inventing ways to try to relate to Him. And so we have all kinds of different religions and, and mixtures of Christianity and other things because, well, we like it our way. We're always twisting it. We mess it up. We instead need Him to come down to us and tell us with His own words, this is what I'm like. This is who I am. This is how you relate to me. So as we move to this next section, we need to see something important here that shifts us from God of creation to covenantal relational God. In the first verse, David says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The word there is El in Hebrew. It's a word that's just used for God in general, a deity. It can talk about the one true God, but it's also used to speak of false gods or just really powerful heavenly beings. Clearly, there's some powerful spiritual being at work here, but we don't know Him. Then we switch to verse 7 and notice the word change for who God is. David calls Him Lord. It's actually, in Hebrew, supposed to be pronounced Yahweh. That's His name. When Moses at the burning bush asked, Who are you? He said, I am Yahweh. This is my personal name. The transcendent, almighty Creator has come to make Himself known personally, to have a relationship with the creation so we could know Him by His name. He does this by His very own words, as verses 7 and 9 explain. The psalm uses different ideas to speak of God's Word. The word law here isn't particularly narrow on like the Ten Commandments or just the Torah the first five books of the Bible, these six parallel statements are to broaden our understanding that God speaking is the way He makes Himself known in this world through the law, the prophets, the writings, and looking forward to the New Testament, the Gospels, and the letters. This Word is how we know Him, and it's a perfect melody. Every lyric is flawless. Every note is pure. Verses 7 and 9 say it's perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, it's true. 
The reason we don't hear and understand the song isn't because there's something wrong with the song. Because there's something wrong with us. We are dull of hearing. God's Word does exactly what it was set out to do. What does God's Word accomplish? Again, these verses tell us how these words work. Like Aslan's song and the magician's nephew. It creates life. It revives the soul, he says. It gives wisdom. It rejoices the heart. It opens our eyes to see the world the way it was meant to be seen. It's a song that never stops doing its work. And it is perfectly righteous. Meaning, it perfectly, clearly, accurately reflects the character and will of God. If you want the greatest joy, the most peace, you want to flourish in this life, you want your life to sing and dance along with creation, you have to know this God personally through His perfect Word. When you understand God's Word and the portrait it paints of our wonderful Creator, it leaves you responding in verses 10 to 11. The Word is more precious than gold, even fine gold. He's saying, my assurance of safety, comfort, security cannot possibly come from any riches in this world, only from the Word of God. We tend to think that the answer to our problems is, I just need more money. So, society's problems, we need to take money from these people who have a lot of it and give it to these people who don't have very much at all. Then we would be at peace. Or if only this community had more money, they could afford a better education and they could start businesses and and they could take better care of their neighbors. Then we would be at peace. But David says, none of this can happen apart from knowing God through His Word. He's the one who will provide this security. But He doesn't just provide for our basic necessities. David said His his Word is sweeter than honey, than the drippings of the honeycomb. His Word supplies for us more than we need for a joyful, abundant, flourishing life. Who talks like that about the Bible? Do we? Most people look at the Bible and see it just as shackles restricting my life. Unrealistic expectations that I could never meet. It creates these bigoted oppressors. But with eyes to see the God that it tells me about and ears to hear His beautiful song, it becomes our only source of joy. As you begin to see your own desperate condition, And above it all, God's marvelous mercy. The person who delights in the law of the Lord trusts that these are good words, as verse 11 says, to steer us away from harm and down the path to receive great reward. We couldn't survive without God's Word. We'd trip off every side of the path. We'd get ourselves back up and fall into the other ditch. We hear the instructions and we twist them for our own purposes. We just mess up this beautiful song that our God has been singing for all eternity. It always happens as David acknowledges in verses 12 to 14. The singer realizes that humanity was created to sing in harmony with God or to God along with all of creation. But 
humanity's harmony is way off key. We are called to join the song of creation singing with the Maker's melody, but we need some kind of redemption to make it happen. As David laments here in verses 12 to 14, he said, Who can discern his errors, his own errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Then let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, after hearing creation's chorus and and the maker's melody, he knows he's in trouble. He asks this rhetorical question, who can discern his errors? He's asking, who can look into his own heart and see all that's in there and, and do something to overcome it? The answer is obviously none of us. We're all prancing around, dancing to the tune of our own soundtrack. Like this world needs to accommodate us. Sing our praises, affirm our desires, our identities, our affections. We want the world to sing our song, but our song is so twisted. It's like a CD that's scratched, if any of you know what CDs are. I used to say cassette tapes, and now we're on to CDs. CDs scratch and just skips and so frustrating to listen to, you just chuck it. Or if you're older than me, maybe the needle on a record across the record. That's what our song is. It clashes with creation's song and God's sonnet. As David listens to the sweet music of creation and he follows along with the lyrics of the law, he knows his life doesn't line up harmoniously with God. He begs God to set him free from these sins that he knows he isn't even aware he's committed. He knows there's something wrong inside of him, but he can't even figure it out. Sin is so much more than just, I shouldn't do that, but I do it anyway. Sin is part of who we are. It's these subtle thoughts, attitudes, behaviors that clash with God every single day. We can't just repent of that one thing and now we're good. We need to repent of everything we are. Our hearts are not in tune with God in ways we're not even aware of. And then there are those presumptuous sins David speaks about. The things we know that are wrong and we do them anyway. And when you decide to do them, even with your conscience saying don't do it, and it just makes it easier to do it next time and the time after that until your heart is so hard, your conscience is so seared, you can no longer hear God's song calling out to you. And you'll never find His joy. The only rescue from these sins is God's mercy to just come in and grab a hold of us and declare us innocent. To hold us back from hurting ourselves. So David cries out in his final plea, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God. It's a cry of desperation. He wants his life to harmonize with God. But he doesn't know how. And so this psalm just kind of leaves us there. What is God going to do to redeem us? To make our song pleasing to Him? 
The psalm doesn't give us a satisfying answer, just leaves all kinds of little hints that point forward to one who will make it all right, to help us sing with all creation the glory of God. And as redemptive history goes on, as we turn the pages of our Bible, we see that the tuning fork, the the pitch pipe for our life is Christ Himself. The one this whole psalm points to, the one David longed to know is Jesus. He's the Creator who spoke all things into existence by the word of His power. So Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. That is our God. Jesus is the Creator. He's the Son that came to dwell in the tent of creation to make Himself known to us. He's the Bridegroom coming out to meet His Bride. He's the strong man running to and fro throughout the earth to conquer all of His enemies. He's the One God puts on display for all of us to sing to. Paul continues in Colossians, He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, He might be preeminent. He's the Son that the whole world can see. He's the one who's the perfect representation of God's character described in the law. He alone kept every word of that pure command. He had all wisdom. His life was a pleasing song harmonizing with the Father's melody. Again, Paul says in Colossians, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Was pleased to dwell. And yet on the cross, He took upon Himself the Father's displeasure for making creation all about ourselves. Jesus died on the cross to take our punishment, ending all of the clashing harmonies of our lives, throwing out the broken records, and rising from the dead to begin a new humanity so that every one of you who trusts in Him can be remade that your life would sing with all creation to the glory of Christ. If you trust in Jesus, you're given His Spirit that you too will delight in the Maker's melody and your life will be a pleasing harmony to Him. So Paul then can finish saying, through Christ, God reconciled to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Psalm 19 is meant to lead us on that path of redemption. It's very practically giving us instruction on how to tune our hearts to sing His grace. It's teaching us the melodious sonnet sung by all creation. So let me just give you a few even more practical ways to begin to shape your life to sing to Jesus with all your life. First, we should immerse ourselves ourselves in creation song. Slow down. Take a breath. Look around and observe creation. Marvel at its Creator. Confront yourself with the massiveness of God to remind you how small you are. 
Find a way to get out of the city, away from all the things man makes, and see all the things God has made. Keep your kids up late at night, way past their bedtime, and take them to a park, and lay in the grass and just watch the stars twinkle and the satellites fly by. Look for falling stars. Or take a trip to the Grand Canyon and stand on the edge and feel the breeze of coming up from the rim reminding yourself that your life is just a breath. Plant your feet on the shore of the ocean and see it just disappear into the distance over the horizon and listen to its repeated refrain as the waves crash on the ocean singing to you who has held the oceans in His hands. See the sun in the tent of the sky and realizing this world was made to put Christ on display, to put on display the glory of the Son of God. Let the heat of His glory melt your pride and hear you inviting, hearing Him inviting you into a relationship with Him. And then open up the Word. Get to know Him by the Word. Many people know God exists, but we don't know who He is, so we make up our own religions. Or we say, oh, I I hear God speaking in my mind, or God spoke to me in the trees today. We can't go down that path. We always need to go to the Word to interpret creation's song and to calibrate our consciences to properly listen to Him. You can't know this God personally just by looking at a waterfall The waterfall might tell you some wonderful things about who God is, but not what His name is. We can only know Him personally by spending time with Him in His Word. And His Word reveals His name to be Jesus. 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 Let's say His name. When we're saved, we need to talk about Him as Jesus because we know Him personally. God is more of a title It's deity. For some reason, when we talk to our friends and family, we go out to work and we speak in these very vague terms about spirituality and and God. It's a little safer because, you know, everyone looks at creation and knows there's a God. So we have some camaraderie there. But we need to push further and say, I know Him. I've heard sermons that sound rather orthodox, but sadden me because they can go for 30, 45 minutes without mentioning the name of Jesus. God is a powerful Creator that everyone is aware exists, so it's easy to have those conversations, but let's tell the world we know His name. His name is Jesus. Let's tell the world our hope is in Jesus. Let's make our lives a song to Jesus. And so finally, let's not just make our whole lives sing to Jesus, but let's gather to sing. The psalm tells us that our lives should sing in harmony, but it's not just a metaphor. We are actually called to get together and sing with God's people. Psalms is a songbook meant to inspire God's gathered people to lead the world in proclaiming His glory. In the Old Testament, they would gather around the temple and use these psalms to sing to God. And now, in Christ, this is the temple. Not this building, but we, brothers and sisters, who are in Him. So we gather around this temple, just like the saints of old, and we sing. Even if you don't think you have a good voice, sing! 
Sing as though He's the only one listening. Let the joy of Christ's song flow through you and sing in anticipation of that day when your voice will be made new. Psalm 19 tells us that creation is singing to God, but the rest of the Bible tells us that God is making a new creation. And you, the gathered body of Christ, are the beginning of that new creation that one day will fill the whole earth. So let us, as a new creation, gather together and sing with more joy, more clarity, more passion than the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and the fish of the sea and the stars in the heavens. Let us sing the glory of our risen King, Jesus. Let's pray. God, we need You. We need You to delight our soul so that Your song will pour out of us. Would You do that by this Word? Would You cause us to go out and see Your power on display and go into Your Word and see who You are and who You call us to be? Continue to shape us that we together would be a new creation people who fill this city, the city of Rochester, with the song of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.